Let's pray. God, we uh, thank you for um, that promise that we sing, that we declare, knowing that you will hold us fast, that, um, that once uh, we have put our faith and trust in you and you have justified us, you have declared us innocent, that, um, that there's nothing that can separate us from your love. That no amount of suffering, no um, amount of loneliness, no amount of despair uh, could uh, cause us to, no amount of sin in our lives on this side of redemption could uh, make you or cause you to uh, leave us nor forsake us. So God, we're just grateful that you are a uh, God whose love is steadfast, uh, whose mercies are new every day. And Lord, we also want to thank you this morning for um, your sovereignty, that, that your ways are not our ways, that the secret things belong to you, and that we, we, just, we know, God, that you are working your goodwill and purpose out um, in our lives, in this church, in every corner of the world. And I pray, God, that through this um, really um, um, difficult Uh, chapter today, God, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we'd be reminded of the suffering that you endured so that we would never um, endure um, eternal suffering, that we would never endure the wrath of God. So uh, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would quicken me. I pray that you would um, uh, just soften our hearts to be able to receive your word. I pray, God, that if there's things that you want me to edit um, that I'm planning on saying that would ultimately not bring you glory and would not edify this body. I pray that you would um, hold my words back. Uh, but may you receive all the glory and honor and may this, uh, these brothers and sisters be edified. And God's people said, amen. amen. So good morning. We're in the book of Job. This is the uh, second week. Um, and we're going to do chapter three today. We did chapters one and two last week. And if I could just encourage you, if you, if you missed last week and you're... Um, uh, planning on making this your church home and being here going forward, get online and listen to the message because it'll, it'll really give you a, a great uh, context and, um, and foundation for the rest of, this, rest of this book, which is 42 chapters long that we're going to do in 42 weeks, which should be fun. Um, I'm one that uh, I think I acknowledged last week, I haven't suffered a ton in my life. Um, I've not suffered a ton. I know so many people in this body that have suffered um, way more than me. Um, we've had, uh, we, we've lost over the years, um, people to cancer, um, husbands to cancer, wives to cancer. Um, we've had, uh, people lose, uh, uh, a spouse to divorce. Um, and about the worst that I've suffered, I would say is probably just, just financially. Um, Nancy lost her mom 20 years ago and that was hard. We grieved that and just some of the things our grandkids have experienced. But, but I haven't experienced suffering the way that uh, many of you have experienced suffering. Um, as we look at this, this, the book of Job, Job is a, is a man that um, suffers greatly, and his suffering seemingly doesn't go away for a very long time. And, um, and I, was just, I was thinking about a friend of mine that, that I had in grade school. And it was actually a friend through high school. And um, his name was David Jameson. And uh, David came to uh, my elementary school when we were in third grade, I believe. I remember meeting him in the, um, in the, uh, on the playground. It was Our Lady of Fatima, um, Our Lady of Fatima. And, um, and I was out there, and here's this new kid that comes in, and he comes, he comes limping in. 
And I, I later found out that he was limping because he had a brace and his left leg was just a, just a hanging piece of flesh. He had polio. And yes, I'm of that age where I actually have friends that have polio, that, that the, the, whatever the cure was for polio, they, they started giving it around the time that I was born. And I remember David Jameson where he was, um, he was always being made fun of. Um, he was always being made fun of, that uh, we, would, we would go to the swimming pool and he'd have his brace off and he'd be hopping around on one leg. And, um, and kids are so cruel, aren't they? The kids just say whatever is on their mind. And I remember one time at the pool, a kid asked David, hey, what's wrong with your leg? And, um, and he said, nothing, what's wrong with your face? And that's, he, he never put his faith and trust in Jesus, but he was one he learned to fight. He learned to kind of stand his own ground. Um, but he is, a, he is a man that, is suffered, that endures suffering every day, and the reminder of that suffering is right there um, inside that brace. I, was, I looked at this, this article called God Shouts to Us in Our Pain, written by Daniel Ritchie. Anybody know who Daniel Ritchie is? And it says this. It's about suffering. Um, he says, I was born without arms. This is the best way to summarize my story. I stepped into suffering at birth. My physical body is a billboard for my pain. This has brought mocking, cruel jokes, stares, and a constant feeling that I'm not like anyone else that I meet. I've never been able to hide. Many people can bury their pain, but my heartache is written all over my two empty sleeves. Those sleeves tell a story without my mouth ever saying a word. My pain almost... My pain almost swallowed me, but Christ showed me how much greater he was than my empty sleeves. I used to think that being born without arms was the most horrible thing that could ever happen to a person. In Christ, he has helped me to say that the worst and most painful thing that has ever happened to me is also the best thing that has ever happened to me. I'm thankful for my pain. All of the the frustration that has come with it has reaped a bounty that I could never have produced on my own. God stepped in and carried me along in my weakness, letting me taste his strength, grace, and love in new ways. In my pain, he has magnified so many of his attributes. And that's what pain does. Pain causes uh, loneliness. Pain causes uh, potentially depression. Anxiety, a sense that, that nobody is for you and everybody is against you. And my prayer today is that in this chapter, you will walk away, if, whether you're suffering today, whether you remember suffering from the past, or God has suffering for you in the future, that you would remember and be reminded of your ultimate hope, that you would stand on God's good and true promises. I want to just do a quick review of where we've been. Last week, we looked at chapters 1 and 2, and we introduced a man named Job. Surprise, surprise. He was successful. He was a wealthy man. He was described as the greatest man in all the East. He was the greatest man on the planet. He was kind of a combination of Bill Gates and Billy Graham. He was described as blameless, upright, one who feared God, one who turned from evil. And blameless literally means that he was a genuine or sincere man. Job's heart for God matched his outward service. He was not a hypocrite. Upright means that he treated others the way that he wants to be treated. 
He feared God, which means that he had a, a reverence for and a desire to please God. And he turned from evil. And to turn from evil means to repent or to go the other direction from it. Job is presented in this book not as a perfect man or as a sinless man, but as a genuine believer. And this is so important. That this isn't just some um, fictitious man who um, lived under the old covenant in the Old Testament. This is a genuine believer and follower of a triune God who we are going to get to meet someday in heaven. He is a man very much like you and I with emotions like you and I who's been saved by faith the same way that you and I have been saved by faith. And last week in chapter 1, we, we, we were given a look behind the curtain of the heavenly realm where the sons of God or angels uh, came to present themselves before God. And at this heavenly cabinet meeting, if you will, there was an intruder, a person by the name of Satan, or the accuser as he is called. And what we don't know, actually, even though I just called him an intruder, we don't know if he actually was an uninvited guest or if he's actually part of God's ongoing cabinet. That's actually a mystery that there's debate on um, throughout, throughout the years. Is he actually part of God's cabinet of exercising evil or is he an intruder? Here are some things that we do know and what we learned last week. God and Satan had a conversation. Satan does only what God tells him to do. Nothing more, nothing less. God offered up his servant Job to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Genuine believer, my friend. Have you considered my friend Job? Satan tells God, of course he serves you. Of course he worships you. You've given him everything. He has every blessing that a man could ever want. He's got reputation. He's the greatest man in the East. He's got wealth. He's got dignity. He's got a great career, business. He's got 10 wonderful kids, seven sons, three daughters. You've put, Satan says to God, you've put a hedge around him and you've protected him. You've protected him. You've blessed him and you've protected him from trouble. Why would he not serve you and worship you? And Satan goes on to say, God, take these things away from him, and he will curse you to his face, to your face. So God gives Satan permission to afflict Job. And Satan took away all that, Satan, all that, all that Job valued, really outside of his health and his wife. Satan does what God asked. And in one day, Job's life was turned upside down, and it was completely ruined. His business was gone. His servants were dead. His livelihood was gone. And worst of all, his ten children, his only ten children, died in one moment. Shockingly, Job said these words after he heard the news. He said, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I want you to just think about that response for a moment. In the midst of all that loss, in the midst of grief, Job falls down and worships God because he is God. He worshiped God when he had everything, and now he worships God when he has nothing. And then in this next scene in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we see the same dialogue going between God and Satan. Satan asks God if he can go after Job's health now. 
And he says, if I take away Job's health, he will certainly curse you, God, to your face. And once again, the Lord shockingly turns Satan loose on Job and gives Satan permission to ruin Job's health. He says, you just can't take his life and destroy his health, he did. He struck Job with open sores from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. And then we see Job sitting in the city dump, covered from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot with open sores, scraping these sores with a broken piece of pottery or a broken piece of glass just to bring some relief from his pain and itching. And there he is sitting alone with his broken piece of pottery, mourning, silent, and in great pain. Both emotional pain and physical pain. And then his wife, in her own suffering, sees her pitiful husband alone in physical pain, and then she tells him to curse God and die. And even though she was seen as an instrument of Satan in that, in that moment, she really had compassion on Job. She didn't want to see him suffering the way that he's suffering. Just curse God and die. You're saved. Job not only did not curse God as Satan predicted, but he worshiped God and acknowledged God's sovereignty in good and evil. He said this to his wife. He said, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And in all of this, it says, he did not curse God with his lips. Job's pain came suddenly, but it it did not retreat quickly. In fact, it lingered. Uh, We were introduced in in chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, to Job's three friends. And these these friends come from a, a long ways away. And the message of Job's calamity had to reach them. And then it says they got together and set an appointment with Job. So it took time for that appointment to be set with Job. And then they had to travel to be with Job. The arrival of Job's friends could have been months after the fact. It wasn't a verse. It wasn't a day, I know that. It probably wasn't even a week or two weeks. It took time. And when they arrived, what they found is Job still sitting in the trash heap in ashes, mourning, silent, alone, and in great pain. It says in chapter 2, verse 13, they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and not a one of them spoke a word to him. him. For they saw his suffering was great. There's a few people that have pointed out to me, and I saw it in a commentary, that, there's, that uh, the tradition in the near ancient east is that you, um, that you mourn with people that are, that are mourning for seven days and seven nights. So there's a, there's a sense from that tradition that, that, they, that these friends had to do it. But I don't actually think it's profitable to go there. I mean, it's great to learn about tradition, because sometimes it's helpful for context, but it does nothing for this verse. Here's what, chapter, here's what verse 13b says. It says that, they, that they, uh, they sat there for seven days. They didn't speak a word. Last part of verse 13, for they saw his suffering was great. Why did they sit with him? They saw his suffering was great. I believe that these friends were good friends. They traveled a long way. They didn't come to rip Job's head off his shoulders like we're going to see them do in the next 24 chapters. They came to bring uh, to grieve while Job was grieving. Chapters 1 and 2 really happened, folks. This is not, uh, this is not mythology. 
This is not fiction. This is fact. This is, um, this, Job was a real man with these real troubles. Job did, in fact, praise and worship God. He, he praised and worshiped God when he had everything, and he worshiped God when everything was taken away. But then we have chapter 3. Then we have chapter 3, and we see Job now starting to process differently. Reality is setting in. He has no more children. He has no financial security. He has no business. He has physical pain that is probably increasing. We've all experienced loss at some level, and you know that when somebody dies, they can, they can kind of muscle through the funeral, the memorial service, can't they? They can muscle through that, but, but it's, it's the weeks and the months and the years afterwards where the, the nightmares start coming in. The, you start playing it in your head, is there something I could have done to be a better friend, a better husband, a better wife, to prevent whatever happened? How am I going to live my life going forward with X, Y, or Z gone from my life? And Job is very much in that place. He is, he's got physical pain. He's got emotional pain. He's got new realities that consume his every thought when he's awake and when he's asleep. And the question is, is what are we to do with our loss? What are we to do in our suffering? How are we to respond to our own suffering? We're not going to talk so much today about how to respond to other people's suffering. Hopefully we'll get to that in the next couple of weeks. But how do we respond in our own suffering? And this is where we pick up today. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to chapter 3 of Job. It's right before Psalms, and it's about 15, 16 chapters after Genesis. And as you're turning there, I want to um, just talk a little bit about this genre of Scripture. And this genre is called uh, poetry. That from chapter 3 to about the middle of chapter 42, it's poetry. It's not prose. Uh, it's not narrative. It is poetry. And, and it shouldn't be surprising that over 300 pages of the Bible was written as poetry. You see, the aim of the Bible is to build a bridge between the deadness of the human heart and the reality of God. And poetry is meant to communicate to us in a way that is different from simple prose. It's filled with imagery meant to evoke mental images and emotion. It perhaps is the ancient equivalent of the modern-day bombardment of images. Think about images that you've seen on Facebook or on TV um, appealing to something different than just our intellect, moving our hearts to identify with what has been spoken about. Think back to 9-11 in those images. Think about the Boston Marathon with people bleeding on the side of the street. Some of you have seen the video of that five-year-old boy that was um, blown up in Aleppo. His parents were killed, and he was pulled from a building, and he was sitting there wounded on a gurney with a bloodied head and a vacant stare. You see, poetry is meant to make us feel and to emote. And I don't know what we do with that in a um, Bible-teaching, Reformed church. That, that God wants, I want to, God has written poetry, He's given us poetry to feel it. And it should hit you at the core. Because Job is not a fictitious person. Job is experiencing what every one of us will experience at some point. 
whether that be along the way or whether it be at age 94 in a bed, waiting and wondering what it's going to be like to die. Here in chapter 3, we see a broken and despairing Job speak for the first time in at least seven days. Let's read Job chapter 3 together. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let the day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor shine light upon it. Let gloom and deep deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the greater there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. The curse. The curse begins with Job wanting both the night of his conception and the day of his birth to be removed from history. He wishes they had never happened. In this rich and dire and hopeless imagery, he describes his desire in graphic ways in verses 4 through 5. In this imagery, birth signifies light and death signifies darkness. He wishes that his birthday would be swallowed up in darkness and the light of that day's dawn would cease to exist. Job, so overcome with grief, wishes the created order to be undone, that instead of light, darkness would claim his birth. In verses 6 through 7, he speaks about the night when his parents conceived him. That instead of it being the culmination of love and joy and intimacy, he wishes that it would not rejoice among the days of the year, that it would not be numbered in any month. 
Job is so overcome by grief and pain of his loss that he wishes that the very fabric of time could be altered, and that moment of conception never occurred. He wishes that instead of it being night, the night of a fruitfulness, that it would be barren, that there would be no shouts of joy that night by his parents, but only silence. Verses 8 and 9, he gets even more severe. He speaks about that night, and he speaks about Leviathan. Leviathan is a symbol of chaos. It's a mythological sea monster that rose out of the chaos of the ocean depths, the great enemy of the creator whose job is to undo the very order and beauty of creation. When he speaks about those who curse the day, he's thinking about the magicians and the workers of the dark and wishing that they would somehow summon up the Leviathan to rip that night of his conception out of existence. That is, somehow rip that day right out of the history books. In verse 9, he talks about it never being a never-ending night. That that night never reaches its purpose. He wishes it would never reach its purpose. He wishes that that night that would never have seen the morning stars would, would have never shined after that night. And in verse 10, we see the reason for Job cursing the night he was conceived and cursing the day of his birth. He says, if I would never have been born, if I'd never been born, I would not have to endure this trouble. Since his birthday is on the calendar and it can't be removed, Job has a list of questions, as I would as well. And he starts to ask the question, why? Why? Why all this misery? Why not just kill me and take me? Verse 11 says, if he, if he had to be conceived and had to be delivered, why could he have not been stillborn? He says, if you can't pull the date of my birth out of the, off the calendar, if you can't get the, um, the conception off the calendar, why could I have not been stillborn? In verses 12 through 13, he asks why he was not abandoned after birth. Why was he received after birth and nursed? Why couldn't he have been left to die? Then he would have rest and quiet found in death. Verses 13 through 19, he longs for rest and he eases, uh, he, he longs for rest and ease from his pain. The silence of death would have been better than the struggle and trouble of life. And I know that some of you have felt that. And I know that you know some people that have felt that. But all throughout this, that suicide is not an option for Job. And for you, believer, it's not an option as well. That, and I would just say this, I don't think I said this last service, but I, I, I pondered it, that in the Catholic Church, that, that they have like venial and mortal sins and all this other garbage, and there's, um, that somehow when you commit suicide, it's a sin that is unpardonable. And there are Christians that have been so depressed and so anxious and so despairing that they took their life. And just like any other sin, even though suicide's a sin, it's, it's not any different than the sins in my life. So I don't want you to think that because somebody killed themselves, they're not in heaven. But I also want you to know that suicide is not an option. All this trouble could have been avoided, Job says, if I had only died at birth. And instead of this trouble, I would have experienced quiet and rest. Job describes death 
as rest from the trouble of life. And you know what? Job is correct. He's got actually has an accurate view of death, of what is on the other side. Heaven will provide ultimate and final rest from the troubles of this life. Revelation 21.4. Jesus says that, that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The former things are the troubles of this life. That one day that we will be, that death is something to actually long for and hope for. We're not to uh, bring suffering or death upon ourselves. But in the midst of suffering, when we have um, a right hope on our, um, our inheritance, um, 1 Peter says that we've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is, a, that is never perishing, never, fa- never fading. It'll never, uh, it's not defiled. It's waiting for us in heaven, and we're being guarded for it on earth. When we have that, that right hope, it is good to long for heaven. And you see, Job here pictures, um, in, these, in these verses, I'm sorry, lose my place, 13 through 19, he pictures its effect on people both high and low in society. Death has the same effect on all people. Job refers to the kings and princes who labored to obtain wealth. They build city, and now they laid down in the grave without all their wealth, without the great cities that they built. Death is a great equalizer. It's a great equal. We will all find death. Kings and slaves, rich or poor, great or weak, master or slave, um, uh, uh, crossfitter or couch sitter. Everybody will find death. And Job's statement is true that our earthly labors will be over. Our, our career will be a forgotten thing. Our status and our fame will be lost. All earthly trouble will be over for God's people. Brothers and sisters, your best life is not now. And it will never be now. We can have a great life now in Christ, but our best life is waiting for us. Our best life is to come. For those of you who know Jesus Christ, if you are here today and you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus for the, for the forgiveness of your sins. Your best life is now. Believe what you hear on TV. This is your best life. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all in need of a Savior. Every sin, the very first sin and the very smallest or the last sin and the largest all of us uh, put us in as enemies of God. And the only way to become friends of God is to put our full faith and trust in his finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, Job, I believe, is responding. There's, there's actually hope in his response. In the midst of his lament, he's expressing hope. He knew that there was something better, and he longed for it. He's not railing against God. He's not being cynical. He's hurting. He's a man in much pain. And we're going to see that, that, that his friends don't turn out to be very good friends. They, they, at the end of the day, they don't suffer when he suffers. They don't grieve when he grieves. We're going to look at that the next couple of weeks.
For Job, having experienced greatness, greatest man in all the East, and now pain and sorrow, he longs for that moment where he would die and find rest, true rest, lasting rest, final rest from the weariness of his trouble. Then we go to verses 20 through 26. And we see the final sequence of why questions that reflect Job's current miserable state. Here he laments his suffering even more, and he he asks really this question, why would God allow people to be born into a life of suffering? Why does God allow that? Why did God allow this man to be born into a life of suffering? Well, my friend, David Jameson, some of you experienced abuse, sexual and physical abuse as kids. Why would God bring you into a world where there's suffering? I don't know that we can answer that. But we'll keep moving. I want to pop down to verse 23, actually, where Job asks the question, and there's a sense here that he's not, he's not necessarily talking to his friends. He's, I'm not sure he's necessarily talking to God. He's lamenting. Why? Why? Verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? What he's referring to here is being hedged in by difficulties. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 10, Satan, uh, Satan had argued that, jo- that Job worshiped God. Why? Because God had hedged him in. Of course he worships you, God, because you've blessed him and you've hedged him in. You've protected him from all the calamities of the world. And now Job experiences a different type of hedge, not to keep trouble out, but to keep Job imprisoned in a miserable life he longs to leave but cannot. A life that is locked into trouble with the key thrown away. That's how he feels right now. There's no way out. He can't bring his kids back. He can't bring his finances back. He can't bring his reputation back. He has no cure from the sores from the crown of his head to the heel of his foot. Here Job says that his suffering makes him one whom God has hedged in with horrible torment with no escape. And in verses 24 through 26, we see great emphasis on what comes upon Job. It says sighing comes upon him. He can't even eat. He's lost his appetite. Groanings are poured out of him like water. Pain, emotional and physical pain, just won't stop. It's pouring out. His worst fears have come upon him. What he dreaded befell him. He has no rest, no quiet, no ease, only trouble. He's experiencing severe anxiety, I believe. In depression. It's not a sin. He's fearful, which I also believe isn't a sin because I believe that he fears God, as we're going to see, more than he fears his fear. He reveres God still more than anything, as we're going to see in the coming weeks. I don't know about you, but there's 
been times last week and this week, I think, you know, I've probably dove deeper into this than you guys have. I'd encourage you to deep dive into it. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a book that'll mark your walk with Jesus in ways that no other book in the Bible will. I believe it. But it can have a tendency to, in, in the moment, cause me to fear. I think I expressed this last week. Like, wow, God, why are we going through this? Or really exposes some fears in my, in my life that are, that are in there, and I've had to confess those. And my wife brought something up this morning. She says, you know, kind of in a crazy way, it actually makes it easier for me. Because she says, once I, once I recognize and once I remember that, that nothing gets past God, that he is in supreme control, that he's not like, you know, like, whoa, 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 Satan, get back, whoa, whoa, whoa. He, he's like, no, Satan, you go here, you go here. That, that there's nothing that is happening in this world that God is not in control of. And reminded me of, the, of, the, um, of, of Narnia. And reminded me of the question that when, when Susan found out from Mr. Beaver that Aslan was a lion. Remember that? And she says, she says is he safe? Is he safe? And he goes, safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's good though. He's the king. He's the king, I tell you, and that's better. That folks, when we're thinking about God's sovereignty and his providence and that he is control, uh, in control of everything, nothing holds together without God holding it together. If you believe that and you forget that he is good and that he is loving, then he is simply a tyrant. But he is both sovereign and he's good. And so we can submit ourselves to him even in the worst of suffering. God's word is, um, is from, from beginning to end is, refer, is referred to something that's called a progressive revelation. In other words, the revelation of who God is and what he came to do and what his character is is progressively revealed the further we get into it. We get, we get a piece of it in Genesis. We get a piece of it that when after Adam and Eve um, sinned, and they were banished from the garden, that, that God promised that he would send someone, the seed of Eve, to crush the serpent's head. And then he, and then he clothed Adam and Eve in, in animal skins, which was a picture of a future sacrifice that would pay for their sins. And then as we go through the Bible, we get to see that actually that, 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 that seed is starting to be referred to as a king and a messiah. And one of the... Uh, uh, Beauties of progressive revelation is we get to see more and more. Uh, we get to keep peeling back that onion. And um, Lamentations is going to be up on the screen. I'm going to read Lamentations 3. And this is the prophet Jeremiah who suffered a lot. And you're going to see a lot of his lamenting um, mirrors Job's lamenting. And whenever I say he has in this verse, it's God. It's God. Just keep that in mind. Jeremiah lamenting in great pain and affliction. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He was he has walled me about so that I cannot escape. Think about the hedging in of, of Job in his tribulations. He 
He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked, he has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, in a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel, and he made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I, I, I had forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. What, what Jeremiah is saying here is I remember my pain. I feel it every day. Progressive revelation, but, the big but. My next tattoo, as I said last time, it's going to be the big but, like B-U-T on my arm, my other arm. But, but this I call to mind. He's, he's lamenting. He's talking about his pain and the trials and the affliction, and then he remembers truth. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Isn't that beautiful? That is progressive revelation that, that we're going to take a, uh, even a closer look at it as we get ready for communion, that we got more progressive revelation this side of the chloros. So for us today, with God's completed revelation, this book called the Bible, we see God's love, mercy, and faithfulness in Jesus' journey to the cross. What a neat time to be doing this as we're in the Lenten season, when we're thinking about Jesus' journey to the cross. And Jesus' journey to the cross contains every element of our own lives, particularly our suffering. As I said earlier, we ultimately don't have all the answers, or maybe any of the answers as to why we suffer, but we know what the answer can't be as to what we, why we suffer. What, here's what the answer can't be. It cannot be that God doesn't see or care. That's not the answer. God sees and he cares. How do you know that? The cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. He sent his own son to enter into our suffering. And to endure suffering, ultimate suffering, that we'll never have to endure. Hebrews 12, 2 says this. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the cross of Christ represents the greatest suffering in history. For Jesus not only suffered physically, but also experienced God's just wrath in taking upon himself the sin of the world. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to the Father, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But not my will be done, but your will be done. And what Jesus is talking about is the cup of wrath. The, the cup of wrath that, that every human being that has ever breathed deserves God's eternal wrath. And I believe that the, that the most significant and hardest part of that wrath is eternal separation from God. That we will be forsaken 
forever if we have not put our faith and trust in Jesus. And then on the cross in Matthew 27, 46, Jesus hanging there in the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ at that moment was experiencing the abandonment and despair that resulted from the outpouring of divine wrath on him as our sin bearer. That brother and sister, you'll never have to bear your sin. We may never fully understand why God causes suffering, but we do know that he cares and he brings comfort. In John 16, 33, close to the crucifixion, he's speaking to his disciples and he said, I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. For in this world you'll have tribulation, trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. For I have overcome the world. How has he overtaken the world? And how can we take comfort? Romans 5, 1 through 5. And we're going to go to communion on this one. How can we find this ultimate comfort in in this world full of trouble? It says in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what justification means. You need to know this word. We talked about it in Galatians. Justification means that you are guilty and that you and I are guilty and we stand before a holy God who is a just God and a loving God and he has a right to forsake us and to pour out his wrath on us. But because of our faith in Jesus' shed blood on the cross, he puts down the gavel. And he says, innocent. Innocent. Forever innocent that you are justified. This is how he has overcome the world. This is where we find our comfort. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace which sustains us in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, that's not enough. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's crazy. Rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We are justified by God's suffering, by Christ's suffering. And we are sanctified by our own suffering. We are justified by Christ's suffering. And we are sanctified to, make, to be more like Christ by our suffering. Can't think of a better Sunday to celebrate communion, can you? That as we um, contemplate the elements, the, the juice, the bread, uh, Jesus himself actually commanded us to... to um, partake on a regular basis of communion or the Lord's Supper to uh, remember his death until he returns. And the, the way I like to think through this is that, that that bread is not Jesus' physical body. That juice is not his uh, literal blood. But it's, it's, like, it's like an anniversary celebration every time we do it. It reminds us of that day when he made us his own of that day when when he said, I do to us, and received us into his family. 
And we're reminded that even though we were enemies, even though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us friends. He made us alive in Christ Jesus. So as, as Job sat there in his misery, being forsaken, in horrible pain and anguish, in many ways he was a, a type of Christ who hung on the cross for you and I. And Jesus on that cross, in silence, all alone, was forsaken by God the Father. That he was abandoned on that cross so that you and I would never be abandoned. So as you come up and take the elements, we're, we're going to have silence, no music. And if you just, just contemplate um, the cross, do business with the Lord. I don't know how to tell you to do business just let God's Spirit direct you. Um, if you're here today and you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you're still thinking that you can be good enough to earn standing with God, um, this is your best life now. So I want to encourage you today to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus and He is yours and you are his, and you're living that imperfect life for him, like me, imperfect, um, come up and grab the elements and remember his finished work on the cross. If, you, if you're not there yet, I'd ask you not to take the elements. God would ask you not to take the elements. So come up in silence, take the, the juice and the bread back to your seat, and then um, I'll come up and we'll, and we'll partake together.
Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And he gave thanks. And he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also. He said, this is a cup of the new covenant, the covenant of my blood. Drink in remembrance of me. And he goes on to say, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, I just uh, praise you. God, you are um, so good. So good. And uh, Lord, we will uh, uh, never fully grasp um, be able to probe the depths of your sovereignty or to be able to measure the expanse of your love. But Lord, I pray that you would help uh, us, in, particularly in the midst of trials, to, um, to believe you, to take you um, at your word, to uh, believe uh, who it is that you say you are, to believe that when we see verses like here in Job where, um, where you are actually uh, empowering Satan, God, that we would remember that you are good and that you are loving. And God, I thank you that Satan, um, Satan can't do anything, um, that we really are um, Teflon people um, unless you uh, tell him to. And he can never take away our salvation. There is uh, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And so, God, I just uh, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you endured suffering, that you were tempted um, in every way, and that you are a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. You've been there. And I thank you, Jesus, that you endured the ultimate suffering. You endured the wrath of the Father being forsaken so that we would never endure the wrath and never be forsaken. So for that, we praise you and we worship you. And so, God, I pray that you would receive our singing, our praise and worship that would be just a sweet-smelling uh, sacrifice to you. Not to gain anything from you, God, but because in you we possess everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.